G'day and welcome to episode 31 of The Other Side Australia, your weekly summary of the best news and views from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Damien Curry, the confused human who can't understand how a country that's built its wealth and prosperity on free market capitalism has suddenly become so interested in Marxism and socialism and thinks capitalism is evil. It's baffling. We do this show because there seems to be no other side in the Aussie media, with a few notable exceptions, to give you some points of view that you may not realise even exist. This week, Alexandra Marshall and Bettina Arndt discuss a new group called Mothers of Sons, set up to protect and support young men falsely accused of sexual assault or discriminated against in other ways. A new climate documentary questions the net zero 2050 objective and the risk it might pose to our global and national security. Scott Morrison gets booed at the footy and the left act like that's never happened before. We'll explore the work of neuroscience to try to understand what it is that makes people vote for someone and why ScoMo's recent attempts to please everyone may be pleasing no one. The new Defence Minister Peter Dutton takes a stand to protect our troops and veterans as he brings welcome leadership to our demoralised armed forces at a time when we really need it. And he has a stern warning for those who may want to harm us. And we'll hear from former Prime Minister John Howard about how he sees the China threat. If you're new to the show, just a full proud disclosure, we are biased, biased towards traditional Western cultural values, free markets, free people, individual rights and liberty, and sensible centrist everyday Aussie values. We're anti-left and anti-woke, just to let you know where we stand. We've got a big show this week. Let's go. First today, just hours before our recording the show this week, the jury delivered its verdict in the George Floyd case. Here's how it went down, unedited. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. Court file number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Jury four-person, 019. Former police officer Derek Chauvin learning of his fate there. He'll be sentenced in eight weeks. While every man and his dog in the public opinion mob will have their viewpoint on the case, it's important to remember that none of us were in the courtroom and sat through all the evidence. We must trust the court system. It was expected that Chauvin would be found guilty of second-degree unintentional murder at second-degree manslaughter, but not the charge of third-degree murder. That carries a much more serious penalty. Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for 9 minutes, 29 seconds, on a Minneapolis street in May 2020, while Floyd pleaded that he could not breathe. Police experts have said there was no excuse for the severity of force used. This is the case of a bad cop, 
being convicted of doing the wrong thing. It's not a case to be applauded by or used by the far left to peddle the lies of systemic racism. But they will, because they're all about division. I'd like to think BLM would now come out and say that this proves the system is working and is not racist, that the Judeo-Christian Western system of justice is a truly amazing thing to be respected and honoured and applauded. But don't hold your breath for that one. They'll be secretly sad that the verdict didn't go the other way and allow them to set their rioting and burning going again. So apparently Scott Morrison got booed at the footy on the weekend. Prime Minister watching on. Russell Gibbs to his left, the chairman of the West Coast Eagles. Nice reception on the, on the big screen. Pendlebury. You wouldn't like to be in that job and come to the footy, would you? Doesn't sound like much. But those at the ground say it was pretty clear that when ScoMo's image was shown on the big screen, the crowd did erupt in quite a boo. Now, this often happens to political leaders at football matches, no matter what party they're from. But that didn't stop the lefties of Twitter having a field day with it. The assumption being that people are booing because ScoMo isn't doing all the identity politics things he should be doing. Buying into all the politically correct nonsense on gender politics, race politics, the environment, all that stuff. Well, maybe one half of the people are booing for those reasons. But given that half of Australia voted for ScoMo in 2019, I'd suggest the other half are booing because ScoMo hasn't been tough enough in standing against those things. There's a growing mood among Aussies, I believe, that we're sick to death of all the identity politics stuff and we want to focus on more important things like our national security and our damaged economy, jobs and the business sector. I feel for Scott Morrison. I like him, and I think we are forever in his debt as conservatives and classical liberals for the miracle he pulled off in 2019. But I think he's having a bit of a rough patch, and hopefully he's now seeing his way out of it. I hope he soon realises that if you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. John Howard once said that the Liberal Party is a broad church. It is, but that church runs from centrist to the far right, with people lining up differently on social views. But the core values of liberalism and conservatism, where we share the ideals of free markets, small government, less regulation, lower taxes, respect for civil liberties, property ownership and individual rights, and a rejection of identity politics and Marxist critical theory, those things are not up for negotiation. If you don't accept those values, you're in the wrong party. But apart from that, people will accept points of view they don't agree with, so long as they feel the reasons behind the positions are genuine. What they will not vote for is people who don't know where they stand or people who don't make it clear to them where they stand, because that destroys trust. But don't take my word for it. American psychologist Professor Drew Weston is a Democrat, but a smart one. He wrote a book back in 2008 called The Political Brain. The neuroscience is pretty clear. In an interview he did on CBS News way back in 2007, when he was trying to convince Democrats to stop being so focused on details and instead inspire people with a bit of leadership and vision, Professor Weston explained the importance of the emotional centres of the brain over the rational centres when it comes to how people vote. If you want to win the hearts and minds of voters, you better start with their heart because otherwise they're not going to be listening to much about what's on your mind. That's the advice he's given a number of Democratic candidates. Who exactly, he won't say. But he does say there is scientific proof that when voters make choices, it's not about an intellectual connection. 
So where the brain isn't lit up is all up here and down here, which are essentially the thinking circuits of the brain. That's basically the dead zone uh, in much of politics. And you, you know, you can plug away at those two millimeters of neural turf if you want through an entire election. You do that and you're going to lose. So the thinking circuits of the brain are the dead zone. Now that sounds bad, but when you think about it for a minute, it does make sense. Our emotional and social intelligence, our gut instincts, rule when it comes to voting decisions. And that's probably as it should be. We're trying to determine if a candidate is of good character and can do the job, whether they're credible and trustworthy and authentic. Our emotional and social intelligence are important and valid. They are the result of a lifetime of lived experience. We should always challenge our feelings and gut instinct, but we should never ignore or undervalue them either. And when it comes to selecting our leaders, we don't. But politicians who play to win arguments will always lose to those who have passion, show conviction, and have a compelling vision to sell. Which brings me back to our current federal government and ScoMo getting booed at the footy. If they keep on letting Labor and the left-leaning media set the agenda and keep reacting from a defensive back foot position instead of a strong leadership position, they won't win. As Professor Weston says, you're going to lose. Do you think if candidates are honest and forthcoming and true to themselves, people forgive positions they don't necessarily agree with? Yes, in fact, the data are crystal clear on this. People prefer someone who shares their values, but what they don't like is someone who doesn't display theirs, who you don't know where they stand on things. That is why Bill Shorten lost last time. And that's why Scott Morrison is sadly on track to lose in the next 12 months, I believe. He's not being booed because he has the wrong position. He's being booed because he doesn't have a clear position, because he isn't showing the spine of a leader, because he isn't saying, hey, I know not everyone's going to agree with me, but I was elected on classical liberal and conservative traditional Aussie values, and I stand by those values. So we're going to do this. Instead, he's trying to be loved by everyone. Newsflash. The identity politics freaks are never going to love you, ScoMo. You could set a quota that 90% of your government must be female, gay, transsexual, and non-white and they'd still hate you, mate. By trying to please everyone, you'll look weak and desperate. And as the booze may suggest, and the last poll slump definitely shows, you will ultimately please no one. If you look at the data, are, there are three things that influence our votes. At the top of the hierarchy is our feelings towards the parties and their principles. So um, the first thing is, you know, do you stand for something and do people know what that party stands for? The second is their feelings towards the candidate. Do you like them? Do you dislike them? Do you like her? Um, the third is their feeling. There is are people's feelings towards the um, the particular issues at the time, and that is a very very distant third. The Liberal Party has lost two state elections in the past six months by doing exactly the opposite of what the experts are saying here, by not focusing on people's feelings about the party and its principles, the big picture values stuff. The Liberal Party needs to stand up for traditional liberal values and get back to promoting and strongly sticking up for the classical liberalism most Aussies support. If they do that, they'll secure their base, win over some new supporters, and even people who don't totally agree with them will respect them and still vote for them. If they keep playing the wishy-washy labour light approach, the losses will continue. Some of you who are regulars to Discernible and The Good Source know that I spent the first 13 years of my career in broadcast journalism in Australia on 3AW, 4BC, Triple M, the ABC and Channel 10. And then I spent 20 years working in PR and crisis communications across Asia. Now, there's a thing in crisis management called the denial phase, 
where an organization is in crisis, but nobody inside wants to admit it, so they just keep carrying on as usual. Nothing to see here, folks. Everyone's nice and polite, ignoring the fact that the building's on fire until it's too late. The Liberal Party was obliterated at the last WA state election. They didn't just lose, they were annihilated. This isn't the time for normal operational thinking. It's time for radical breakthrough change. No, it isn't going to be easy. The left have done a fantastic job of infiltrating our schools, our universities, our entire government bureaucracy, and most of all, our media over the past 30 years. They own the public discourse of two generations at least. And the stranglehold that the public servants and the unions have on our government, no matter who's in power, is stronger than ever. The war is a cultural one, and we liberals, conservatives, libertarians, small government, free market people are losing big time. We've got to start to tell the story of why liberalism is good, why it's better for the poor, the sick, for social security generally. And we have to explain why socialism and left-wing big government, freedom-crushing values and ideology are so very, very dangerous. Australia's got no political party doing this well at the moment. There's just the Labour Party, a left-wing party that's been overrun by Marxist critical theory zealots obsessed with equity, which will ultimately send us the way of Venezuela, and a Liberal Party that acts like it's a bit embarrassed by its own philosophy and seems to be apologising for its own existence all the time instead of proudly cheering for its values. They're good values, but they need a champion. Freedom, law and order, strong family, small government, less bureaucracy, less regulation, pro-small business, pro-Aussie business, tough on crime, strong on defence more individual rights, and the riches and wonderful lifestyle that those values bring for everyone in a country that embraces them. Who's standing up for classical liberal values in Australia right now? We have a liberal federal government following and accepting the liberty-crushing actions of Labor premiers on COVID, when their own liberal premier is killing it with a balanced approach that respects civil liberties and keeps everyone safe in New South Wales. The party's not even putting up a fight amid the greatest threat to civil liberties from the left that we've seen in recent times because they're scared. The market research must be telling them Aussies like a tough stance on COVID, but that's because nobody's presenting a viable alternative except Gladys, and nobody else in the Liberal Party is selling Gladys's approach hard enough. It'll only take one group of smart centrists who aren't seen as too far right to form their own party, and the party of Robert Menzies and John Howard won't just have only two seats in the WA Parliament, but in every Parliament. Such a party could emerge in WA after the recent crushing defeat. I really hope ScoMo finds his mojo. There are some encouraging signs this week, actually, that he might have. More on that in a sec. One member of the Liberal Party who definitely gets it is the enemy numero uno of the left, Peter Dutton. His appointment to the defence portfolio as our new defence minister has been widely applauded by the conservative side of Australia, as a hand-in-glove portfolio fit. And it gives Dutton the platform he needs to strut his strong leadership, which is what the country desperately needs, especially in the defence portfolio right now. This week, he took the sensible step of delivering a clear no to that bizarre decision by the Defence Department bureaucrats to blame everyone for the sins of a few by stripping about 3,000 Special Forces soldiers who served in Afghanistan of their meritorious unit citations. All of this, of course, followed the Burton inquiry, which found credible evidence to implicate 25 soldiers in the alleged unlawful killing of 39 people, mostly Afghan citizens. It's horrible and it needs to be fully dealt with swiftly so that the innocent aren't tarred with the same brush as the guilty. It won't be dealt with swiftly, of course, because government spends 20% of its time doing stuff and 80% of its time protecting its backside along the way. So it'll take ages. 
But at least Dutton's decision ensures all the soldiers will keep their merit citation unless they're convicted of war crimes or are dismissed for being an accessory to a crime or for failing to uphold army standards. However, he says the 99% who had done the right thing deserve our recognition, our praise and our honour. Hear, hear. Dutton appeared on the Alan Jones program on Sky News Monday night after visiting the SAS in WA. I've made, made a decision, Alan. I've been very clear about the fact that I want us to concentrate on the 99% of people who received that unit citation and the amazing work that they did in our name, in effort of our, in support of our country and uh, in support of their allies in Afghanistan and Iraq as well. Now, there are some people who have done the wrong thing. There's a process to deal with that. And I don't uh, demean or diminish uh, the severity of some of uh, that. And there are lessons that have been learned. But the most important thing now is for us to concentrate on the capacity of these young men and women who should inspire all Australians. We have the most, I think, able defence force in the world. The capacity that they bring to the Five Eyes Nations, now to the Quad Partners and to others in our region, should really send a fear uh, down the spine, a tingle down the spine of our adversaries. I hope so. Now we need Minister Dutton to deal with those in the bureaucracy who thought this might be a good idea, including, unfortunately, Chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell. How can our nation attract good, smart young men and women to serve if we treat them with such disrespect and contempt? I'm just alerting you to the fact that there are people out there who've had no access to justice and they, they've loved their country, they've served it faithfully, and with no opportunity to walk up the steps of a court of law, they've lost their job. The families are devastated. I've spoken to them. Mothers are saying, wives are saying, I'm no longer a wife, I'm a carer. My husband can't handle it. I mean, 600 troops since we went to Afghanistan in 2001 have committed suicide. I mean, how do you reach out to these bravest who came home from war who are struggling enormously because of the way they've been treated? Well, there's an incredible amount. And I spoke to some of the officers here today that have dedicated themselves to provide that welfare support. Yes. And there's also legal assistance. Anyone who has applied for legal assistance has received that assistance. That will continue as well. And we'll make sure that through the Royal Commission, we have the ability to hear the stories, uh, to understand where mistakes have been made, uh, and to learn from all of that. Alan Jones also pointed out that those accused are having to deal with the consequences with apparently very little support from the Defence Department. Catherine McGregor and I are running around trying to raise money for these people to have defence. They've heard nothing from the Department of Veterans Affairs. One wife said to me yesterday, defence has thrown us into the gutter. And then they got a termination notice from Defence at the start of December, just before Christmas, and they're gone. You're being terminated. I mean, family's not even called before the Brereton inquiry. Received termination, kicked out of the Defence Force. No charge laid, no help. Well, Alan, you bring, you bring those cases to me because the advice that I've got... Thank you. ...is that pe people that have applied for the legal assistance, uh, they've got it, and I'd want to see people with the proper legal representation, you. so I'd be very Good happy to look at any of those Good questions. on you. Good on you. I really thank you for your time, Peter Dutton. I mean, it's a hell of a burden you have because you inherit what is, in fact, a mess. I mean, I mentioned to you the wife who said to me yesterday, I feel as though I have to pick him up, put him over my shoulder and carry him for the rest of my life. So, Peter Dutton, I hope we can talk further about this really critical stuff because you can't defend the country if you demoralise people to the extent that they don't want to sign up. And I'm sure you understand that. Thank you for your time. Indeed. Good luck in your endeavours.
Defence Minister Peter Dutton on Alan Jones' Sky News show this week. The suicides of veterans that Alan mentioned there is an astounding problem. Since the war in Afghanistan started in 2001, 41 Australian soldiers have lost their lives in the conflict. But in the same period, an estimated five to 600 veterans have committed suicide. They survived the war, but not the aftermath. To Scott Morrison's credit, he's announced this week that a Royal Commission will be held into veteran and serving defence personnel suicides. The Royal Commission will have a mandate to examine the systemic issues and any common themes and past deaths by suicide of Australian Defence Force members and veterans, the experience of members and veterans who may continue to be at risk of suicide. It will examine all aspects of service in the Australian Defence Force and the experience of those transitioning from active service the availability and quality of health and support services, the pre-service and post-service issues for members and veterans, members and veterans' social and family contacts, uh, such as family breakdown, as well as housing and employment issues for members and veterans. Now, I think inquiries take too long and waste time normally, but this is one that we desperately need. A swift investigation by the department people we already pay to do these things would be better, but as I said earlier, government doesn't do efficiency. Families of soldiers who died by suicide have been lobbying for the inquiry, so we need to get on with it. In February 2020, the Prime Minister announced a plan to create a permanent national commissioner for defence and veteran suicide prevention, but it stalled in the Senate. The PM said the new Royal Commission will work alongside that national commissioner, who will be required to implement the recommendations from the inquiry. So some good, strong leadership there from the Prime Minister. And then on Monday night, SCOMO addressed the Business Council of Australia announcing a $120 million plan to cut red tape via a special deregulation task force within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. The goal is to provide Aussie business with a reduction in compliance costs estimated at more than $400 million a year. A move, the PM says, is to take unnecessary regulatory burdens off business, to unlock investment and to create jobs. Thank you, sir. Let's see much more of that, and let's start by doing everything we can to wipe red tape and admin for small business in particular. Well, now the news. It's all bad and there's no reason to smile. Have you ever noticed that about the news? Because the news is serious. You can't joke all the time, Josh. I beg to differ. If you watch The People's Project, you'll see a lot of smiling. Watch The People's Project, Friday night, 7.30 p.m. For the past year or so, former Labor Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and former Liberal Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull have been waging a campaign against Murdoch Media and Rupert Murdoch. They don't like the fact that a company can have control of so much media and so much power to shape public opinion. Even if that company had to win audience and earn its own way over many years and is only successful because we the people keep buying their product. Which, by the way, is produced by hundreds of journalists, not Rupert Murdoch. Nothing upsets the left more than the power the free market gives to ordinary people. The power should rest with the government. At least Murdoch pays their own way and are accountable every single day to the marketplace. We don't buy their papers or watch Sky and Fox and they go down the drain. Contrast this with what Rudd and Turnbull think is totally appropriate in the media. $1.2 billion worth of other people's money used to fund multiple networks staffed by government bureaucrats almost universally of left-wing anti-private sector attitudes. How is that fair? Well, Rupert Murdoch is fighting back in a not-so-subtle way 
with an upcoming Sky News documentary about Rudd and Turnbull. They had the potential to be two of the greatest prime ministers this country's ever had. They are so alike. The animosity between the two was visceral. Their childhoods are defined by the loss of a parent. I think Rudd read the headline that he was the messiah and he absolutely believed it. I have given my absolute best. In a special investigation, exclusive revelations from Kevin Rudd's brother. Is your brother a good man? Um... The extraordinary detail. He puts his head on my shoulders, almost in tears. How two men... Both were outsiders. Both brilliant. They could achieve anything. Ultimately failed. I saw a very nasty side to Malcolm. You're hopeless. You've done this wrong. He wanted to rub it in. If you don't take your party with you, they cut your head off. Men in the Mirror, 8pm May 2nd. Now, I'm not so sure that that's going to calm down the critics of private media ownership and bias, but it's hilariously good sport and fun. And if people don't want to watch it, they wouldn't be paying for it, right? Private media, like us, can be as biased as we like. We're not bludging off the taxpayer's dime. A couple of weeks ago on the show, I criticised the decision by men's rights supporter, author and sex therapist Bettina Arndt to give a platform to the convicted pedophile who groomed and abused the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, when she was just 15 years old. I mentioned at the time that I support a lot of what Bettina says, but I felt her decision to interview that criminal was a huge error of judgment. Now, we don't do cancel culture on this show. We are all guilty of errors of judgment, and if someone has good ideas, they get heard. And despite that one mistake, Bettina Arndt says a lot of very important stuff, and makes a lot of very good points about the state of sexual politics in Australia and the rights of men. She recently did a long interview with our good friend Alexandra Marshall on Ali's show Curtain Call on the Good Source platform. It's a great interview, and the link's in our program notes, but here's an important bit of it. It just is so infuriating for me as part of that generation of, I was, you know, one of the... um, generation of women who were really benefited from that second wave of feminism where we were being offered freedoms that women hadn't had before we were allowed to you know we didn't have to be chaperoned we we were given a right to to take risks like men do to go out and 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 behave like men and all of a sudden now we've been treated as total victims and we and in need of, of constant protection that is the most bizarre thing to watch. Uh, why is it that we, women are no longer powerful um, and independent, but are seen as little cripples that need constant protection? I mean, my, so, many, my, so many aspects of what this we've been through in recent decades are just absolutely gobsmacking to my generation, I think. My theory is that the feminists don't really want strong, powerful women who act like men. They want women who they can control for their political purpose. And so... They didn't actually want what they were asking for. But yeah. we will now talk about the men too hashtag, which uh, I believe is a reaction to the me too phenomena that has been going on. I'd written a few articles about the whole issue of men losing contact with their children after divorce um, and what was very obviously uh, a system where the custodial parent had and it was usually the mother, of course, was given all the rights. She could move where she liked. She could cut the man off from seeing the children. She could, you know, and nothing, 
she there were very little consequences no matter how badly she treated that father and a judge wrote to me out of the blue a retiring family court judge and he said you're so right and he gave me a series of interviews about the mistakes they he felt had been made in the way fa the family court system had been set up and then there are you know there have been so many other issues that have developed from that and the domestic violence is the absolute classic one where um you know this domestic violence industry is um a, really a propaganda machine designed to demonize men it started off from a very important place protecting women who were genuinely at risk of violence in their relationships and the feminists quickly realized this was their cash cow that this was this was the apple pie issue that no one dared attack and they we've watched them get billions and billions of dollars for domestic violence funding which totally denies women's role in, in family violence which does nothing to protect children from violent mothers and which offers absolutely no protection from men who are living with violent women and at least a third of that we have our official statistics showing at least a third of the victims of domestic violence are male uh, and there's there's nowhere for them and to go with their children if they're trying to escape a violent woman well that brings us to the website called mothers of sons and its new campaign they don't speak for me and i'm just going to read a paragraph from the website to introduce it for our our viewers the website says Women need no evidence to make accusations of violence or sexual abuse that deprive men of their children, their homes, their careers and futures. Some of us have spent our life savings protecting sons from false accusations of sexual assault, paying a huge mental and financial toll to prove the charges had no substance. Other sons are experiencing discrimination in the workplace or in educational institutions where advancement can be based upon gender rather than merit. Some face Me Too accusations where unproven allegations can undermine a lifetime's achievement and cause loss of career and reputation. Some of our sons are victims, physically and emotionally abused by their partners, yet they are offered no protection or support. So, Bettina, where does this They Don't Speak For Me campaign come in? These are women. People should believe them, shouldn't they? I mean, we're supposed believe to believe all women. We know we've been told that believe yeah. all women. Believe all women, except mothers of sons. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's been very interesting watching them trying to uh, attract public attention and have the mainstream media not interested because they're not the sort of women that, that the media is interested in. You know, fascinating. Um, anyway, they, they were watching the whole um, Canberra, recent Canberra rape crisis uh, and the, the way that that is being deliberately used to denigrate our criminal justice system to imply to imply what our already biased criminal justice system is not giving women a fair a fair go i mean it's such a joke you should, these these mothers stories of these and i'll tell you one fascinating story is a one of the mums there 18 year old son was uh, well, he was accused of rape on his 18th birthday and um, oh, just I hope people will go and have a look at her story. Um, just terrifying for this mother because all of a sudden the police are there, and the, the son is taken away and, 
and it was in you know, put in prison for a week while like, before until they managed to get bail for him and so on. And this long process of dealing with the police who clearly saw this boy as guilty, who did everything they possibly could to ignore evidence that would have exonerated this young man. Um, and finally, 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 they had this court case where it all came out in court. She was discovered to have DNA from two other men in her vagina on the night in question and not from this young man and was proved to be lying about any number of things in relation to the accusations against him. When that guy, that young man, walked out of that courtroom, the jury stood there clapping him, with, and some of the women had tears in their eyes. And it said it all, that there, it was a, a blinding demonstration of the injustice of our current system, where Women are invariably believed. Any accu rape accusation goes is now pushed through to court uh, once the accusation is made. And the police bend over backwards to believe her and don't listen and don't give him a proper chance for his evidence that supports his case to be given a proper hearing. And uh, it's very scary stuff. Anyway, so the mums in this group... Um, are very aware of what's going on, are really alarmed by the fact that we are seeing this effort, this very public effort to you know, further wind back um, legal protections for accused men. And so they've started this campaign, They Don't Speak For Me, saying this group of women who are controlling our media now don't speak for ordinary women. And they've put together a, a letter which is on their website, which people can just download and send off to MPs. One of the things that they're worried about, and I've always been worried about, is politicians only ever hear from one side. Uh, this noisy minority group that is controlling our media um, absolutely dominates uh, political discussion as well as public discussion. And we need to speak up. We do. The link to that Mothers of Sons website and letter is in our program notes. Bettina Arndt, journalist, author, men's rights campaigner and sex therapist, speaking with our delightful Alexandra Marshall there. There was a horrible murder on the Gold Coast just as we were putting this week's show together. Another apparent domestic violence homicide related crime, this time taking the life of a young mother of three kids. Such crimes kill an average of 1.5 women a week in Australia and one man almost every week too. Violent crime is a big issue, but it's not a gender issue. And we can't let neo-Marxist feminists use it to push their gender agenda. We need to work to prevent violence and support people with mental illness. We will not solve the problem by driving an even greater wedge between men and women and overplaying gender politics. <laughs> A new documentary has dropped this week from a Canadian-based climate change skeptics group called Climate Discussion Nexus. The group was founded by documentary filmmaker, journalist and PhD in American history, Dr. John Robson. The documentary suggests that there are two different visions of how the world should look in 2050. One is the net zero vision. Which says that within three decades, the world must all but eliminate fossil fuel use and get carbon dioxide emissions down to zero, net of the amount plants and trees absorb. So many politicians, business leaders, bankers, and academics around the world are calling for net zero that you might think it's solidly based on science. But it's not. 
Many experts dispute the necessity of this 2050 plan and indeed its feasibility. They say the worst case scenario for the impacts of climate change over the coming 30 years won't be nearly as costly as the impact of getting rid of fossil fuels. They say trying to get to net zero in such short time could destroy our prosperity and weaken us internationally. And they say we couldn't get there even if we tried. Despite these objections, and with virtually no public debate, governments throughout the Western world are embracing the goal of net zero by 2050 and are preparing to impose the target regardless of the costs. They're not interested in the vision of cautious, evidence-based adaptation to what the future brings. In the interest of presenting thoughtful analysis from the other side on major issues, we recommend you check out this Backgrounder documentary, and the link is in our program notes. It's about 20 minutes long. But the really important part is the other vision that exists for the world in 2050, as the documentary explains. This other vision is called the 100-Year Marathon, and it's like a mirror image of net zero, because it's the Chinese Politburo's elaborate and ambitious scheme to build up their nation's economy and its global power, so that by 2049, the 100th anniversary of Mao Zedong's seizure of power, China will be the world's dominant superpower. And then, starting in 2050, the ideology that guides the Chinese Communist Party will spread around the globe, achieving what they like to call harmony, although a better name for it would be world domination. Now, tie this in with China's acquisition of strategic ports around the world, its more aggressive stance in the Indo-Pacific, its illegal entry into Philippine waters in the past weeks, the intrusion and incursion into Taiwan territory, and the recent comments by the United States Indo-Pacific commander that he believes China will move on Taiwan within the next six years, and a picture emerges that we dismiss these signs as just a conspiracy theory at our peril. You might be tempted to dismiss this warning as paranoia, some kind of warmed-over red scare. But while Chinese leaders are careful not to say much to the rest of the world, they talk openly about this ambition among themselves. The plans are found in high-level speeches and strategy documents, and the implementation is progressing around the world, step-by-step, step, right in plain sight, including the so-called Belt and Road Initiative and the not-so-green investment in coal plants in many third-world nations as well as at home. But most Westerners still know nothing about it and find it hard to believe such a plan could even exist, let alone succeed. Unfortunately, the truth is that these two apparently disconnected visions of 2050 are two sides of the same coin. They both lead us to the same place, with the West hobbled and weak, and China powerful and dominant. And if our governments don't know it, don't want to hear about it, the Chinese government certainly does. So the point of the documentary is that we need to think about what impact all these feel-good carbon emission reduction plans are doing to our national security. High energy costs make us weaker as a nation. So when we don't build one or two coal-fired power plants while China builds dozens around the world, we are deliberately making ourselves weaker while our enemy gets stronger. We also can't attract investment if our labor costs are high, which they are, and our energy costs are high. We will never get back to manufacturing essential goods at home. And that greatly puts us at risk because if we have no energy security and no basic goods to fuel our supply chains, if we get cut off from the rest of the world somehow, even for a short time, it's not going to be long before we have shortages of many essential goods and services. Matt, do you think I'm smart? Not really. 
Maybe I could be smarter if I learned how to read. You don't know how to read? I don't know how to read. Can you teach me to read? I can't teach you how to read, but I can teach you how to be really, really fast in reading. I've been teaching speed reading to over 7,000 students over six years. Really? Oh, I know, I forgot that I've done this for ages. Anyway, check out the course in the description, uh, link in the description below on special for the People's Project viewers. It's a good way to support Dissemble. Uh, John Howard served as the 25th Prime Minister of Australia and was in office from 1996 to 2007. His government returned 10 out of 12 budget surpluses. That happens when the government actually spends less money than it brings in in taxes. Or to put it another way, it doesn't borrow from our kids' future to spend on stuff today to make itself popular today with money it doesn't have today. Doesn't happen much these days. To coincide with the 25th anniversary of the election of the Howard government, Mr Howard was interviewed by his former Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson, on Mr Anderson's podcast. It's a fascinating 75-minute conversation. You know where to find the link. Mr Howard had some sensible words about the threat to Australia from the current Chinese Communist Party regime of President Xi Jinping. There's no doubt that the rise of China, particularly as a more assertive, anti-democratic uh, Diplomatically, if I can use that word, it seems a bit uh, a bit of a contradiction in terms of diplomatically far more aggressive. The big difference between Xi Jinping and his two predecessors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, with whom I dealt very extensively, was that although the predecessors were ardent communists, and Jiang Zemin, of course, reached back to that generation of Chinese who still cooperated with the Russians. He, his fluency in Russian was better than his fluency in English, which incidentally was pretty good. But they, although they were ardent communists <clears throat> and they ran dictatorial regimes, let's not kid ourselves, they were nonetheless, uh, both of them interested in friendly relations with the rest of the world. Now, the, the difference with Xi Jinping is very marked. I think the attitude over the South China Seas, that just repudiation of the international arbitration. Uh, Mead talks about the international institutions. Well, uh, there was an institution involved in delivering a judgment on the South China Seas and, and China just chose to ignore it. Mm. And, and in, in doing that, not only antagonised Australia, but also antagonised uh, a lot of um, Asian countries, such as the Philippines and, and Vietnam. As far as Australia is concerned, the inevitable question is, how do we um, insulate ourselves against uh, the worst of those uh, uh, predictions coming true? Well, there's no um, magic solution that's not known. Uh, we, we have to continue to run a very strong economy. Uh, we have to continue to build our defence forces. Uh, I would still like to see more debate on that and I remain somewhat concerned as a lot of, lot of people are about the huge investment in the submarine program. I just worry about that. And, but we also have to remain um, uh, close to those countries that we share common values with and that obviously means uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada, the, I regard the Five Eyes arrangement uh, as one of the greatest contributions to uh, our security. Uh, 
I can't think of a better arrangement when thinking about uh, cyber attacks, thinking about um, international terrorism, although reference to that seems to have dropped down the list a little bit in recent times, but it is still there. So there's no uh, magic bullet uh, that ignores economic strength, uh, the maximum degree of self-reliance in uh, defence that a country of our size can muster, but recognising that security is always to be found in alliances with other nations. And also, I think, a, a, achieving a balance in our international relations between supporting institutions when they work, but always remembering that the nation state is still the principal organising principle of uh, international relations. And if you want somebody who best illustrated that, to my mind in the last 50 years, look just to the north of Australia, to Lee Kuan Yew. Mm. When he became uh, the boss, prime minister of an independent Singapore, pushed out of Malaysia, a small population, no natural resources, a tiny island, but out of that they built a remarkable financial hub and, and uh, he was always somebody who thought that at the end of the day, every country had to be self-reliant. And, and that applied to all of us, and most particularly our own country. Lee Kuan Yew uh, observed uh, in, I think, around 2002, that China would increasingly flex its muscles, mm. possibly never having to resort to military power to bring others uh, to heal and he said we would have to work in concert uh, so that if, it, if, if one of the nations in, in, the, in the region was attacked, others supported it. We'd need that sort of group get together. And I think that was a valuable insight. He also made the observation that if you're a shrimp in a big tank full of um, fish, make sure you're a poisoned one so that no one wants to eat you. <laughs> and, and I think that's relevant for Australia as well. You know? <laughs> I I think it is. And, and the, the, the biggest, uh, I suppose, um, geopolitical concern I have about China is what will happen to Taiwan. Yes. Ten years ago, I said and I believed that what would be the ultimate working out of Taiwan was some kind of then Hong Kong arrangement. Mm. I no longer believe that. Nobody can believe that because China has changed utterly towards Hong Kong mm. and the clamp down there uh, is, is menacing. It's in defiance of the understanding that was reached in 1997. Uh, it will be distressing to many Australians who have relatives in Hong Kong and the connection of large numbers of Australians to Hong Kong mm. through travel and the like is... is a lot more widespread than many people appreciate. Mm. But the Chinese are not turning back. And I worry that um, there will be an attempt to intimidate uh, Taiwan into accepting a, a different arrangement. Yes. I don't think the Chinese want an all-out war. Uh, I don't think they do at all. 
Yes, well, this is Lee Kuan Yew's point, or was his point, that, yeah. that, that they probably don't have to resort to No, no, no. And, and in this day, and as we now see, everything from biological capacity, it seems, mm. through to uh, cyber attacks and, and, and other ways of forcing people to heal, mm. it'll be very difficult, I would have thought. Uh, that that is going, and it is without doubt, the biggest single mm. foreign policy challenge that we have. That's former Prime Minister John Howard. John Anderson's podcast is one of the best. He's one of the nation's best liberal-minded thinkers. And I'm thrilled he's decided to seek pre-selection from the New South Wales National Party to run for the Senate at the next federal election in a wise elder capacity. We need more of that in the Senate. This week in our comedy section, conservative YouTube comedian Kayvon examines the widely held view that comedians in America don't think there's anything to joke about when it comes to President Biden. Because every article I'm reading online is saying comedians are finding it tough to mock Joe Biden. Washington Post, there's not much to make fun of with Joe Biden. LA Times, comedians can't figure out what's funny about Joe Biden. Jim Carrey, who wanted to do a good Joe Biden impression, has decided to hang it up and no longer do it on Saturday Night Live. And Saturday Night Live, which used to be a comedy show, has no cast member who can make fun of Joe Biden. Here's an example of something that happened just this week, but Saturday Night Live has refused to address it. Enjoy. Watching an old man fall is not funny. I would never make fun of someone at a nursing home or someone's grandmother. But you have to understand, Joe Biden is a horrible human being who mocked people's fitness and agility for the last few years. Don't believe me? The media hid this clip from you when Joe Biden made fun of his voter for being fat. You're a damn liar, man. That's not true. And no one has ever said that. No one has heard that. No. You're seeing it on the TV. No, I know you do. And by the way, that's why I'm not sedentary. I don't like it up and and, and no, let, 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 let him go. Let him go. Look, no one has said my son has done anything wrong. I did not on any occasion. And no one has ever said it. Not I one. didn't say you were doing anything wrong. I you said, said I set up my son to work in an oil company. You know what you said? I, Get your word straight, Jack. That's what I hear on, the, on MSNBC. You don't hear that in MSNBC. You did not hear that at all. What you heard? Look, okay, I'm not going to get in an argument with you, man. Well, yeah, you do. But, uh, but look, fat, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. And less than a year ago, Joe Biden was making fun of Donald Trump for not being able to walk properly. The one time he walked down a ramp a little slower on a hot summer day. A step or two. Uh, what's your response to that? Look at how he steps and look how I step. Watch how I run up ramps and he stumbles down ramps, okay? Come on. It had no handrail. It was like an ice skating rink. Which means this is fair game. I mean, coming up with a funny clip about Biden is not that hard. I dreamed this up as soon as I saw it happen. Donald Trump Jr. tweeted this within hours of the fall. (laughs) 
Now, the only reason you wouldn't find that funny is because you're an intolerant, insincere, overly politicized leftist. And I have a lot of younger viewers, so I want to talk to you guys for a minute. Saturday Night Live became famous off of mocking President Gerald Ford falling down the stairs. So why are they silent about it now? Chevy Chase's whole career came from the way he would fumble, making fun of a Republican president. Roll the clip. For President Ford, the year seemed full of snags. In June, he fell down the plane steps on arriving in Austria. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And now for my second announcement. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! No problem. Don't you just love history? So since those platforms, SNL, Comedy Central, Netflix, refuse to make comedy out of things that are funny and instead push a social agenda on you, I highly suggest you follow me, subscribe, and share me with all your friends. I'm a dinosaur, one of the last remaining comedians left. Let's hope not. That's Kayvon. Check out his site. And that is it for another week of The Other Side Australia. Don't forget to subscribe everywhere. And if you want to support us, do tell your friends. That's the best way to support the show, spread the word. If you'd like to sponsor the show or any of the discernible shows, do get in touch with us. I'm on Twitter at dcoury, at D-C-O-O-R-Y. So just reach out with a message. I take messages. Uh, we'll see you next week on the discernible platform at discernible.io. Do sign up to the crew uh, for premium content. And uh, check us out on Discernible, Facebook, The Other Side Australia, on Apple and Spotify platforms for audio only, and The Good Source platform. We'll catch you next week. And in the meantime, don't let the woke kids get you down. <laughs>